Okay, ladies, so um, when I uh, wrote this lesson, I entitled it Beholding the Beauty of the Gospel because I really, I really believe there's nothing more stunning than all the glorious perfections that we see of our God, His amazing grace as we see the truth of what He did in becoming our substitute and then everything that follows because of that. But I'm going to tell you something. This last week, um, I was really bogged down in this lesson. And it didn't help any that I got sick at the end of the week. And Saturdays are my day to work. And I just, oh, do you just ever feel like, and someone told me this when they got here, you're just like swimming in this. And you're like, I am not getting anywhere. Do you ever feel like that when you're in the Word of God? That's where I was. And that's not good when you're the teacher. Okay, so I'm just saying. <laughs> At least you guys can show up and, you know, you're just sitting out there. And so I was like, oh, what is going on here? And I was like, why is this feeling like such a chore to me? And I really felt like the Lord just spoke to my heart. And he reminded me that while we're hiking on this trail through Romans, and it's going to be a haul, that I needed to stop and I needed to look up and I needed to gaze at the vista because I was really looking at the next step on the trail and the rock and whatever was in my way. And I, I, I stopped for a moment because God doesn't just want our minds to be engaged. It starts there. He wants our hearts. So we can't just, when we're fighting that battle, we can't just stay there because it's always, it's for me personally, and if I teach, I mean, I could get up here and just do, give information and, and explain it. But I just don't think there's any power in that unless it has stirred my heart. And so we have to fight for that. And so I started reflecting on just what we're seeing that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and that there's none righteous and all that he purchased for us and that beautiful ladder and that golden chain that we started with, um, our redemption and our justification. And we talked about all those different words that have to do with being set free, like the slave and being finally the top of the ladder, reconciliation, that we are in a relationship with the living God of the universe. What an amazing thing. And I think we all, think about your life. We all, God made us in relationship. I think that's why he created family. If everything reveals who God is, I think that's why we have family. He teaches us about himself in relationship. And there's so many aspects of that. You know, you have parents, you have siblings, you have children, you have grandchildren, you have a spouse maybe. Any and all of those teach us things about what it means to be in relationship because it starts with Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And so we should think that is the greatest treasure of our lives, that relationship. And so I started reflecting on that and thinking about relationships and how meaningful relationships take time, they take effort, and they take investment. That's where a lot of people get in trouble with whether it's in marriage or with their kids or with friends. If you don't make time and invest, it's not going to be a fruitful relationship. That's just the nature. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. It is not a mental transaction. It is not something that's going to happen without us spending time, without us making sacrifices. And so I, I was thinking about how, like, God is just a chore to me right now. Like, who's, I didn't say it that way, but when I'm sitting there wrestling with the word, so I need to stop and I need to get a vision. And I want to encourage you to do that because it gets, it gets weary and it didn't help any that I wasn't, I haven't been feeling well, you know, if you've dealt with that, it, it, it makes, if you can't think straight, but he wants so much more for us in this study. That's why it's not called the doctrine of Romans. It's beholding the beauty. And at any moment you find yourself getting bogged down, I want you to stop. I want you to step back and I want you to reflect on those powerful, beautiful things that we're seeing. There's a combination in what we're doing in Romans though, because at the same time, we want to see the vistas, but we also want the difficult, the strong, the things that are going to undergird us, that are going to help us stand firm as mighty oaks of righteousness. And you don't get those unless you delve into some of the nuts and bolts and the deeper things. So you need both, 
okay? So I want to encourage you in both of those and to press on. Um, there's not any point where I am going to get to where I'm going to say, look, I just don't have time for my grandkids anymore. Now, every now and then, my husband tells me I need to know how to say no. I literally cannot say no to my kids or grandkids if they need something because I love them so much, and I love being with them to the cost of sometimes my own rest or my own health. And it's not because kids are, they expect it. It's because I want to. Does anyone else feel that way about a relationship in their life? Sometimes we're that way about our work. We can be that way about a lot of things. Why wouldn't we be that way about God, ladies? Why wouldn't we be that way about his word? He is giving us himself through his word. So when we feel tired or bogged down, I want to encourage you, don't think of it as getting ready for an algebra test. We're doing that at the college right now. That's what makes you weary. That's not what it is. Take a moment, spend some time in prayer, ask God to help you get a vision, and then press on. So I'm just confessing that as your teacher, I get it. We're at, I think we're at that point where we're all kind of feeling that, okay? But we need to take a breath, we need to take a break, and we need to like readjust our focus and then take the next step because God has wonderful things. And we're going to get to chapter 8 in a couple of weeks. And y'all, it's awesome. Now, you know, Phil already did it, but we're going to do it again because it's awesome. And it, it's just a wonderful vista. So I want to encourage you in that, that our hearts would be about pursuing the greatest treasure that we have, which is God himself. All right. So we're going to start in Romans 6, and we're going to cover verses 1 through 14. Last week, we saw how sin entered through one man, Adam, and how death through sin, so that in Adam all sinned. We have a type of a union with Adam. That was the argument that Paul was making. But he's laying that foundation. We see evidence of that, sin and death. There is a type of union with Adam. But in a similar way, though much more profound, life entered through one man, Jesus Christ. He provides righteousness for those that come to him in faith. This is not automatic, as Pastor Phil says. It's a free offering, but you must surrender your life, trust Christ to be your substitute, and ask him to come and be the boss of your life. That is what salvation is. Knowing it in your head is not surrender. So I want to put that out there and not assume everybody here or listening to me has done that. That is the call. The call is to enter in to the relationship. So you must do that. And when you do, you have a union with Christ so that all he is and has becomes yours. We ended chapter 5 with, So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We said grace is a power. I've been thinking on that all week. Grace is a power. And overflowing, how much more? So while there's union that brings death, how much more does this union bring life in Jesus Christ? And then we get to chapter 6, and Paul addresses another objection from his imaginary um, interlocutor or the debater. Remember, this was part of the Greek way of, of teaching. So let's look at verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning? That verb um, implies habitual persistence, a continued pattern. Doesn't mean that there will not ever be a sin, but go on sinning, living in continual sin. And the argument was, well, if when we sin, how much more is there grace? Then the more sin, the more grace. Obviously, that's ridiculous. But a lot of people were worried about Paul teaching about grace and not obedience to the law. And the question was, where's morality? Where's the argument for morality then if there's grace? What's going to keep people from just going crazy? And that's what he's making the point here, that we're going to move from outward to inward, and we're going to see that, okay? Paul is highly emotional. That, that whole thing where he says uh, in the NIV, it says, by no means. What does yours say? 
Y'all say, does your translation say something different? May it never be or something like that? Um, that it's actually the very strongest idiom of repudiation in Greek. It's like the strongest thing he could say. May it never be is really the literal. A person who has died to something cannot live in it any longer. Christians are still able to commit sin, but they're not able to live perpetually in those sins. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. That is a lifestyle. Think about it. If God cannot be in the presence of sin, you have the Spirit of God living in you, and you can just continue to go on sinning? That makes no sense. Now, what we're transitioning here is from salvation, redemption, justification, to what we call sanctification. It's all part of the same work of God. When he justifies you and gives you his righteousness, and we're going to see his life and his spirit, it will bring forth change and fruit. Now, at different paces, in different ways, but it will change you. You cannot have the spirit of God living in you and not be changed. The big word for that is sanctification. It is a process of being conformed to the image of Christ that will go on your entire life while you're here on this earth and then be completed one day when you're taken to live in the presence of God without this body of sin. But it's complicated, as we're going to get into while we're still living here. It's complicated, but it will happen. You will change into the image of Christ if you have the Spirit of God living in you. Not that you walked an aisle, not that you believe it with your mind. If you have truly given your life to Christ and trusted him alone and he has given you his spirit, he will begin the work. He who began a good work in you will complete it, okay? So I want to make that point. He's starting to transition to that. Colossians 3.3 says, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. We're getting into this mystery of this union still. There's a little bit of mystery in that. And that's why he started with, you can obviously see the union with Adam in some way because of sin and death. We now have this union with Christ when we have truly given our life to him. All right, Romans, uh, or verse 3, let's look at verse 3 now back in chapter 6. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Now, why does Paul, he's talking about, you know, we died with him. Why does he go to baptism here, okay? He could have just talked about we died with Christ. So why baptism? I don't think Paul is just talking about the water baptism ceremony here because what he says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism. He's talking about the metaphor for union, okay? It's a ceremony, and it doesn't save us, but it gives us insight, okay? And how he uses it here, he gives, it, he gives us some explanation for the picture, okay? Let's keep our spot and go to Matthew 28, 18, and see what Jesus had to say about this, okay? So go to Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And, and I want to make a connection here that I got from Sinclair Ferguson, who taught on this. And I, and I really liked this. This added something to me. All right, this is right before Jesus is ascending. These are like his last words to his disciples. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the end of the age. So Jesus has commanded them to go make disciples, to baptize, that's the importance of the ceremony, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want to propose to you that baptism is a naming ceremony. 
We have all come into the world with the name of Adam. We are joined to Adam. It's written all over our lives. We saw that last week. But in Matthew 28, at the end, right before his ascension, he is instructing his followers in how to pronounce God's name because he wants them to understand the fellowship into which they've been brought. God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God in fellowship with one another. And when you baptize men, women, and children out of the name of Adam into the name that gives you access to the triune God, that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one of the pictures of baptism. Yes, we get death, and we're going to talk about that to life. But we were in Adam, and now we are in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So for Paul, he had been brought into this holy name. Baptism is a symbol of death, but it's also a symbol of immersion. Immersion. Immersed in Jesus Christ, in union with Jesus Christ. It's a daily reality. Now, you died to sin, you're raised to life. It's all a picture of our union with Christ. What John the Baptist did was do a baptism of repentance. That's what he was all, repent, and that's why he would baptize. And so when Jesus came to him, that's what he had been doing, baptizing people into repentance, turn from your sin. But he didn't want to baptize Jesus, but Jesus said, we must do this to fulfill all righteousness. But I want you to think about that. Here he was out in the Jordan River where everyone else had been immersed because of their sin, turning from their sin, immersed in this river of sin, so to speak, that gave a picture of him being immersed in all that I am. And when I'm baptized, I'm immersed in all that he is. It's that beautiful exchange. And so besides being a naming ceremony out of the name of Adam into the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he goes on to say that we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We are united in death to sin. That's the death. It's death to sin and resurrection to life. Just as Jesus' resurrection life came because of his death as a sacrifice for our sin, so believers' holy life is a consequence of our death to sin in Christ. Our holy life comes when we die to sin. Now, this this new life talks about a quality of life. And I'm not going to read all these, but if you want to jot down these references, these are some of the things that we see in this new life. In Ezekiel 36, 26, we get a new heart. In Ezekiel 18, 31, a new spirit. In Psalm 43, we get a new song. 1831, a new spirit. I'll slow down. I can talk a lot faster than y'all can write because I can talk really fast. Ezekiel, last one, okay. We said Ezekiel 1831, he gives us a new spirit. Psalm 43, he gives us a new song. In Revelation 217, a new name. In 2 Corinthians 517, we're made a new creation. And Ephesians 4.24, the new self. That's the new life that we are raised to when we have been buried with Christ, truly in repentance and salvation. Now, here's our first truth. The cross delivers us from sin and gives us the power to live. True life. The cross delivers us from sin and gives us the power to live a true life. Now, you may not feel that you're delivered from sin because it still has influence over you, but it does not have complete control. We talked about that being under sin, the master, complete control. And so along with that, even though you may feel that way, here's your next truth. God's truths are not dependent upon our feelings or emotions. God's truths are not dependent upon our feelings or emotions. That's why they have power, ladies. God's truths are not dependent upon your feelings or emotions or our feelings or emotions. You've died to sin. It is not your master. You may feel like it, but it's not. 
All right, let's go to verse 5. If we have been united with him, there's that union again. If we have been, notice past tense, united with him like this in his death, we will, future, certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. I want to make that point that one of the things that's happening here and really what Jesus ushered in is a shift in time to the new eon where he is going to reign. It's not fully realized yet, but the old was put aside. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. So we have already entered in, in part, to the new time when he's going to make all things new. That's why he's saying, if we have been, we have hope for the future resurrection. Now, we are made alive right now with the Spirit of God living in us, but one day our bodies are going to be resurrected just like his body, and it will all be new. That's part of our hope in the future. So we're, ho- we're living in the, it's already happened, but not yet. And so there's a clue here of part of what can drive us to the kind of living he calls us to is not just what has happened, but what's going to happen. God wants us to hold both of those in our mind. So there's an allusion to that with the past and the future in that verse. And verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Our old self is not necessarily our life before we were saved. It's really the old man. It really means, old means worn out and useless. That's who we were in Adam. That's our old self, worn out and useless. I got to tell you, at 62, I have a lot of days when I feel worn out or useless. But then again, God's truth is not based on my feelings. So I need, that just came to me. I'm going to have to remember that when I wake up in the morning. I think I'm going to put that up. Okay. So. Let's talk. Uh, Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. All right? Let me me find that. I I just jotted part of that down. Let me read the rest of that for you. When we talk about the worn-out, useless part of us um, has been done away with. I didn't write the whole rest of that verse down. I guess I was going to look it up. So let me look that up. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Y'all, who loved me and gave himself. That, that's what we're seeing. That is our motivation, y'all. That is our motivation. Not only the power of the Spirit, but the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Why would we not do everything to let his life live in us? Okay? Now, let's go to Ephesians 4, 20 through 24 and see what Paul had to say here. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that's in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So there's two parts to this. There's our positional righteousness where God has truly put us out of Adam and into Christ. We call that positional righteousness. He has given us his righteousness. This is our standing before God. But as we live, we will then have practical righteousness where we live out who we are. And that's part of the transition that we're making here. God has put off and put on, but it's also partly our job then to carry that forward and put off and put on. Um, And then Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Let me find that. You can see so many themes in Paul's writings of what he's saying. Colossians 3, 9 and 10. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. So you see 
we are being conformed into his image. So the body of sin is our body and our flesh. It speaks of our sinful propensities that we're going to deal with within our body until one day he redeems our body. We have a holy redeemed person living in an unredeemed flesh. That's the battle. That's the battle. We're no longer slaves to sin because it says anyone who has died is freed from sin. And so then he goes on and he explains it more in verses 8 through 10. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe, that's past tense, if we died, we will also live with him. Once again, that speaks to the future resurrection, our hope. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. All right, so we don't have to worry about that. Death was done. He's not having to sacrifice himself over and over again. Um, This is what Christ has done, and it's true of us. Paul is using an outward picture of baptism to show an inward reality. The problem is always when we stop at the outward. Okay, I want, and I want to take a little, a little detour here for a minute just because I felt led to do this when I was doing my lesson. And this is not standing up, so let's see what I can do here. Put this over here. All right. The problem is with that God, when God has given us outward signs, when we stop at the sign we miss the picture, okay? Signs are given to teach and remind us of what is true. God knows we need reminders, okay? So let's review for a second. What were the two big things that the Jews trusted in that Paul has dealt with? Do y'all remember what they are? The law and circumcision, okay? Circumcision was given to Abraham Abram, I guess at that time, I don't remember his name was changed then, as a sign of the covenant that God made with him. It was a sign of being in the covenant with God. It came through the Jews, all right? But remember, before that, we saw in chapter 4, he was already counted righteous. It was a sign of this covenant. But even in the Old Testament, it was always about the heart. It was an outward cutting away, separating yourself apart from the things that were ungodly to this relationship with God. But even in the Old Testament, and this is why I want you to see the channel. A lot of people say, well, the Old Testament was law. The covenant in the Old Testament was law, but in the New Testament, it's grace. I want you to see the truth of how it flows. It was always about the heart. It was always about the heart. All right, Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 16. I want to read you all a few Um, scriptures and we looked at some of this about circumcising your heart Deuteronomy 10 and I'm going to have to move this podium because I'm losing it maybe I'll just put it on my lap Deuteronomy 10 this is this is when God is giving the second the law this is in the context of the law the second tablets okay starting in verse 12 And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, walk in his ways, love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens and the earth and everything in it. Yet, so he's over everything, yet he has set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked. Do you see all the love in that? Who thinks it's a covenant of law? It's love from the beginning. It's always about relationship. Circumcise your hearts, being stubborn, prideful, stiff-necked. It's always the part of it, all right? And Jeremiah 31, classic. Let me find Jeremiah 31. No, 31, verse 31. 31, 31. Dot, dot, 31, 31. There you go. That clarified everything, didn't it? Okay. (laughs) Jeremiah 31, starting on 31. Remember, he made this covenant with um, Abram. 
Abraham. And with some, thank you. Will you help swap that out yep, for me? Yep, yep. Thank you so much. I was just about to do that. You're awesome. Okay. Oh, that's so much better. Okay. So he says, and this is the great promise. Okay. So we have the old covenant that we have the covenant God made with Abraham. And then we had the Mosaic covenant that was almost like an extra piece that went in there with the law. Okay. So we had circumcision and the law, but God, That was not the final plan, and this is where we see it, even in the Old Testament. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And ultimately, it's with us, because we are in whom? Abraham, by faith. Remember, we saw that in chapter 4. So it's to us as well, if you have come to faith in Christ. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So this is the Mosaic covenant. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. You see the relationship? This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their what? Hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. There's the picture of the new covenant. The new covenant that Christ bought by his blood. Okay? I'm going to give you two other references. I'm not going to read them because of time. Ezekiel 36 well, excuse me, first, Ezekiel, it's also in Ezekiel 11, 17 to 20. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28. And then in the New Testament, in Hebrews 8, 10 through 12, he quotes the Jeremiah verses I just read. 8, 10 through 12, Hebrews 8, 10 through 12. So, in the Old Testament, God is speaking of a new covenant where there's going to be a new heart to obey. And you know what has enabled that. Jesus has bought it by paying the price, and then God has given us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And one of those verses talks about a new spirit. I will get a new, new spirit. That's the thing that's different. That's the thing that's different. All right? In the Old Testament, God gave certainly the law, and then there was circumcision, the cutting away, the sign of the covenant. But also he gave feasts to be celebrated that pictured the relationship. And I want to talk about Passover because it, it's going to loop into where I'm going, so hang with me a minute. Passover occurred when God was delivering the Israelites from bondage. What did we just see in Romans? You're no longer a what? Slave to what? Sin. So we're looking at what has happened through Christ is our deliverance from bondage. The picture was they were slaves in Egypt. They were in bondage. And right before God's deliverance, he gave them the um, instructions to take the innocent lamb into their home to kill it, to put the blood over the doorpost, to eat the lamb and then be ready and that the death angel would pass over them and not kill the firstborn. So the blood of the lamb protected them. That was a very important thing, and they did it once a year. Okay, You're going to see where I'm going with all this in a minute, so just hang with me. So the Jews had the law, circumcision, and the feast. But when we come to the New Testament, we see how Christ fulfilled all of these pictures. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law. He was crucified and became the Passover lamb. He provided salvation that includes justification, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation. It's so full, ladies, there's a lot of words, a lot of big words to describe it because no one word gets all of it. And now we are living, we saw last week, in the how much more of grace. Death was defeated when he died, buried, and was rose again. So now we have the new covenant, which, by the way, the word testament means covenant. The Old Testament means Old Covenant, New Testament, New Covenant. We have now in the new covenant two ordinances. We don't practice circumcision, okay? This remind, these remind us of what is true in the new covenant. 
And I'm hoping that as we go through this and in light of all that we're doing in Romans, you're going to get a deeper understanding of these and they're going to have greater meaning to you. That's one of the values of hiking along this trail, ladies, okay? Baptism is one of those ordinances that Paul is using here to illustrate our identification and our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. In verse 3, we were baptized into his death. And verse 9 says, how many times was he baptized? Once. The death he died, he died once. Death has no mastery. He overcame death. Baptism is the symbol of our initiation into the body of Christ. It's an initiation ceremony, just like circumcision was. Into the family of God, that's why we don't do it repeatedly. It pictures the once-of-all work of Christ in which we participate by faith when we surrender ourselves to Christ in salvation. We are dead to our old nature, our name in Adam. We come up in our new nature, Jesus Christ, and we have the new name that we participate in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is our reality. It is true. We have died to sin. It is even true, ladies, when we don't feel like it. Our old self, verse 6, was in Adam, was crucified so that the body of sin might be done away with. Not completely removed, but rendered powerless. So here's your next truth. Believers are not under sin. It's not our master. I want to keep reiterating that. Believers are not under sin. It is not our master. Do you live like this? Do you have some besetting, ongoing sin that you continue to practice? And you may feel like it's your master, but I'm telling you that's a lie. It is not your master. It can influence you and entice you, but because of the power of God in Jesus Christ living in you, you can resist. You have the power to resist. Now, I want to make a little correlation between baptism and circumcision. Go to Colossians 2, 6. Go to Colossians 2.6, and we're going to read through verse 14. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith you were taught, overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on human tradition and basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority, and I want to say over every sin in your life. In him you, will, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, buried with him, you see the circumcision, not with a circumcision done with the hands of men, but circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in baptism and raised through him through the faith and the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, before Jesus, in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code that, with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. The law was opposed to us because we couldn't keep it. He took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you. Okay, and he goes on and talks about that. So Christ triumphed at the cross. He nailed all of that to the cross. You have that same spirit living within you. Okay, it's done by Christ because it is a circumcision done by Christ. So in some ways, baptism is a picture of the same of circumcision, the putting away of our old nature. Okay. So, while circumcision signified the putting away or the cutting away, it did not signify giving life. We needed our heart of stone to turn to a heart of flesh. That's why the new covenant was needed and why it's powerful. It is a covenant of life through death. 
He talks in verse 4, we may live a new life. In verse 5, united in resurrection. Verse 8, if we died, we will live. Verse 10, the life he lives, he lives to God. God made you alive. You see the difference? It's not just the putting away. It's the giving of life. So just like the correlation of Adam and Christ, sin and death, how much more the abounding grace through Christ. So we talked about circumcision and baptism, and we see that Jesus taught this principle. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it will not produce fruit. Life through death. He who loses his life will find it. Life through death. So, no, baptism. Did I say circumcision? I meant to say baptism. Baptism, some denominations believe that you have to be baptized to be saved. That's what I'm trying to get at. It doesn't, like when you're baptized, that's not when the Spirit of God. Because we saw that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? Baptism is an ordinance that shows your initiation into the body of Christ. And it's a picture of what has happened. And some writers say that's why it needs to be done publicly. I think Phil even talked about that. Because it is our identification so that we show the world what has happened. It's also a physical, you know, we all need physical things to help us see and remember and nail down what we're doing. That's why in the old days a lot of times we would go forward to the altar and, and make a decision. And, like, people don't want to get up in front of people, but there, there's something about that that being in a public way, those of us that are older that have done that, not saying you have to do that, but it really helps make that commitment stronger. And so that's a piece of what's happening, along with teaching all these great truths. But the, uh, what's the other ordinance that we have as Christians in the New Covenant, besides baptism, that we do once? The Lord's Supper. So let's talk about that. Israel were slaves, and, he, and God instituted the Passover just before he brought them out. They celebrated it. But I want you to see how Jesus, in the New Covenant, took this feast and applied it to what he was doing. And, and I'm hoping this will make it more meaningful for you in light of all that we're learning in Romans. And so, in verse 22 of Luke, or excuse me, verse 7 of Luke 22... Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed. Okay, so we know that that's what's happening here. Okay, and he tells them to go make preparations, and they all gather to celebrate the Passover. Remember, the Passover was the blood of the lamb, delivered them from the death angel, and um, it was what happened as they were delivered from bondage. I hope you're getting the picture here of the beauty of it all. After taking the cup, I'm in verse 17, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and said to them, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. So he shifted the celebration that instituted their deliverance from slavery to the true deliverance of slavery, the new covenant that he bought in his blood. Just as Passover reminded Israel they were delivered, the Lord's Supper reminded us that we are delivered. Take ye, this is my body. It's more than just a one-time thing, though, because in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-six, he says, for Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Okay? Do this in remembrance of me. So, as you eat and drink the Lord's Supper, you are taking him as your life. You're yielding yourself to him. You're certainly supposed to examine yourself. But it's the second part. You've been initiated. You've died in baptism. You've come to life. Now you live your life united to him in the vine you're taking literally his life living in you now the bread and the juice don't literally become his life and save you some people believe that the catholics believe that that once again that the symbol is life-giving and it's not life-giving in regard to regeneration or salvation 
But it is life-giving in that these ordinances remind us and draw our hearts back and lift our heads to the vista that I was talking about earlier of who we are and what he's done and how we must depend on him. That's all part of it. That's what's going on. And, and we are living upon him. He's our sustenance. Just like you drink and it becomes part of you, that's how we are to live united to Christ, trusting him, depending on him, loving him, investing in that relationship. And we declare that his death is our life. Death to life, ladies, death to life, the new covenant, the new covenant. And then the other piece is when he said, do this in remembrance. And I read this and I loved it. Think of this as an appeal from a friend who doesn't want to be forgotten. You remember what I keep quoting from Hosea, what he said to them? But me, you forgot. But me, you forgot. It's called communion because it's about relationship. It's not just a memory of the historical Christ. It's our participation in Christ. We are to live upon him, to feed our souls on him, to find our strength in loving communion. Another reason why I think maybe we should do it more often than we do, ladies. We do it in the Baptist circles once a quarter on the fifth Sunday. And there, there's a dilemma because a lot of denominations, I mean, there's some evidence that early church did it every day. And some denominations are places, churches, they do it every week. And, and, and I don't know what the answer is because that's how we are to live daily dependent on him. So when you do it all the time, it can become rote. But if you don't do it very often, you're not getting the other part of life giving, of remembering death to life, the new covenant. It gives life. So, you know, I don't know what to say about that, but I've, I've thought about it as I did this. We find our strength in him just like John 15. What's John 15? The vine and the branches. Okay. Until he comes, because once again, it's not just about the here and now, it's our hope for the future. It's the resurrection, the ultimate life. So now in light of all this, we get to the very first exhortation. We've been all the way through Romans, and Paul has not told us one thing to do. And I'm going over tonight, so if anybody needs to get their kids, you can go. I don't time myself, so I never know how long I'm going. But he gets to the very first exhortation, which I'm going to tell you, it is always Paul's way in the epistles to give the doctrine this is who you are and what Christ has done before he gives therefore here's your duty it's always doctrine who you are before duty because we can't do it apart from the life of Christ so he says in the same way in verse 11 count consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer the parts of your body as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, but under grace. So... We must have the heart of flesh, the spirit of God, before we can do this, okay? Before you can do your part. But we must do our part, ladies. Salvation, sanctification, they're all part of the same process. And then we're going to see later in Romans, glorification. Paul writes about them all as having already been done. We're just on that journey. Morality is not about specific actions, Here's your next truth. Morality, and you know what I mean by that, doing what's right is always about who's Lord. Morality and doing what's right is always about who is Lord. He talks about do not present your members. This is all of yourself because we are under grace, okay? You can sin, but you cannot sin and enjoy it if you have the spirit of the living God in you. And the closer you are to Jesus Christ, the less you're going to enjoy it. Speaking from experience. So if I'm not that sensitive to sin in my life, I'm thinking, hmm, maybe I'm not that close to the Lord right now. The closer you are and the more dynamic your relationship and intimate, the more you're abiding in him, the more you're going to be aware of your own sin. Okay? Now notice, he doesn't warn us about sin reigning in our soul or spirit, but in our bodies. 
because in a Christian, that's the only place sin can operate is in your body. And so your next truth is warfare is waged through the body. Warfare is waged through the body. He said, do not offer or present the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. That means yield or give parts of your body. Use them as an instrument. That word is actually a weapon. So the way you live your life, what you do with your body is literally a weapon. It can be a weapon of wickedness. Okay. But notice he says, present yourselves to God. I want you to notice that. First, he said, present yourselves to God before he talks about using the members. Why is that? Because it's all about the relationship. All that we do that's good is about the relationship. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And then he says, offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. The key is all about our relationship. Who is our true love? Then our, weapon, our bodies can become weapons of righteousness. I was thinking to myself, you know, when we think about instruments, does he say wickedness? Let me look back. What does your translation say? Slaves of sin, do not offer yourselves. Uh, where am I? Oh, here. Instruments of wickedness. Yeah, I was right. What do you think about when you think about offering your body or using your body for wickedness? You think, you think about sexual immorality. You think about murder. You think about all of those things. But I got to thinking, um, in James 3, do you know what he really deals with in James 3? Oh, yeah. You could, you could, you could burn it down with the tongue, ladies. I have done that. <laughs> I'm sorry to say. He says, he who controls his tongue controls the whole body. Wow. We might all need to think on that this week. When we're thinking about offering, and, you know, we can think, oh, I don't do that, I don't do that, but maybe this is where our focus needs to be. So we want our bodies to be a weapon for righteousness. Think about the power in that word. The key is whose you are, who is your love, who is your treasure, And then finally, I want to just end with the question of, are you investing in that relationship? And are you living as one who's been brought from death to life? Because all the things we should do flow from that. Okay, so let's pray. God, we praise you that you have brought us from death to life. Lord, true life, which means to know you. So God, Help us to know you more deeply. Help us to love you. Help us to treasure you more than ourselves, ultimately, Lord. And help us to show you that by how we spend our time and our energy and our focus this week. In Jesus' name, amen.